Hey guys, and welcome back to the Sweaty Palms podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Dillon, and today's guest is Nate Nelson. Nate has worked as both a musician and producer, and back in 2011, he started his band called White Violet with his bandmate, Brad Morgan. White Violet is an indie rock band based in Athens, Georgia, and has released three albums and five singles. You can check them out wherever you stream music. Nate currently works at Tweed Recording Studios here in Athens, Georgia, where he teaches production and also works as a producer. We talk about his background in music, how he got into production, music cities he's lived in, touring and working with other artists and bands, as well as Tweed Recording and much more. Nate is a really kind and insightful guy, so this episode was a lot of fun to record, and I've been saying for a while now how I wanted to get a music producer on the podcast, so it finally happened. Um, But yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. I have not had a music producer or someone who works in production on the podcast yet, so, and we've known each other for like a really long time, so this is just, yeah, exciting. Do I look different from the last time you saw me? You do. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. because I think last time I was like... Well, yeah, right. something like that. And then we've just talked on the phone since. That's right. So, yeah, crazy. I you know. look the same. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Always a compliment, I guess. Yeah. I remember when I was little, I saw you perform live a mm-hmm. few times. What drew you to music? Um, I got interested in music when I was in elementary school, really. My best friend at the time when I was in fourth grade was in fifth grade, and he was a drummer. And so I went over to his house, and in his basement he had his drum kit set up, and uh-huh. he taught me how to play Smells Like Teen Spirit, and He's, I think that was it from yeah. there. Yeah, so I was a drummer for a really long time, <laughs> and then in sixth grade, I think I started my first awful band, and then <clears throat> just continued from there. First band was called Anthem. Oh. I'm sure there was at least 35 other bands called Anthem <laughs> at that same time, but yeah, we were just an awful punk band. And that was the first band I started writing songs. Uh-huh. And so one funny thing with that band was we would, I would play drums primarily and sing. Uh-huh. And then we wrote this song where all of us would rotate. So there's oh. three of us. And so our bass player would get on drums. I would get on guitar. Our guitar player would get on bass. No way. Yeah. So then half the set would be me playing drums and singing. The other half of me playing guitar and singing. That's really cool. How did you do the switch offs? Like, I, don't, I wish I remembered. I think there's probably a recording somewhere, but we just wrote a song where the bass would drop out. She yeah. would walk behind and like get on the drums and then I would walk up. That's, re- that's, I mean, I guess it's weird to talk like a cool party trick. If you were to ever like <laughs> yeah. resurrect the band, you should do that at a party. And totally. then I feel like if you did it on TikTok or something, it would blow up and then y'all would be like world famous for this cool thing. I love it. Cause I've never heard of anybody doing that on stage. Have you? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You should try it. I, know <laughs> I think we've, yeah, we're a little ahead of our time and yeah. we might've rehearsed that a little more than any of the other songs. So, you know, <laughs> as you should, as that you was should. like the yeah. good moment of the set probably. Yeah. Cool. I'd, yeah. I'd pay money to see that so you should put it on tiktok and then tag me or like yeah cool (laughs) tag the podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) um oh yeah i didn't tell you so the name behind sweaty palms Mm -hmm. like as i was talking to you early before we started recording i get really nervous Um, i'm sure you picked up on the energy it's palpable (laughs) but my hands get really sweaty when that Mm -hmm. happens and so that's just why i named it sweaty palms yeah thank you um but yeah i I forgot to tell you that so i'm just gonna throw that in there we can keep talking about your background in music so you were in a band yeah, so then I started um, I started writing songs, and then I guess when I got to high school, maybe sophomore year, I just met all of my closest friends. We were uh-huh. all musicians. And so awesome. that's kind of when I started to really, really take it seriously. It was kind of funny. I mean, we were in a band. We had a band all together where we just kind of jammed and, like, whatever happened, happened. But mm-hmm. then that's when it really started for me. Like, I started taking songwriting really seriously. And my mom always talked about this one day where basically we were having practice and mm-hmm. she came home and everyone in my band was like outside and I was in there practicing by myself and she was like, what happened? <laughs> and basically I was like, I'm not trying to jam. I need to like write this part. Can you guys leave the room while I just like oh. finish this part? And so I think that was just the start of me just really, really taking music super seriously yeah, and starting to focus on the kind of minute details of songwriting and being a band and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so from that, I mean, love those guys still in close with those guys. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just started finding musicians that were kind of different mindset than I was. And uh-huh. it just so happened that there were dudes that were like 25 years old when I was 17. They're in a band called Modern Skirts around yeah, town. I love them. Yeah. And so those guys helped me record a good mm-hmm. bit. And then they helped me. Um, they were my band for a little while. Oh, wow. Which is really fun. So... Yeah, I found music by 
playing it and writing it. But then at the same time, when I was in high school, I went into a recording studio to record. I recorded two records when I was in high school with a guy called Andy Baker. He now lives in Taiwan and is a recording engineer, but he was the absolute coolest and best person I could have possibly met mm -hmm. when I was that age. He was just so supportive, but then also just had such cool taste mm -hmm. and his studio was so cool. It was in his house. So he basically had his living room where he lived. And then every other part of his house was his recording studio, what? which like now, if I could have that studio, I would, <laughs> you know, um, but he was just such a, the perfect person to meet at that time. Mm -hmm. Like he knew that it's like, all right, you know, this kid's in high school. He's definitely not like writing the most amazing music anybody could ever write right now, but it's not really what it's about. You know what I mean? Like he knew where I was at. I just needed to like get these ideas out and gain experience. And mm -hmm. so, but just buying, being with him in his studio, that's when I was like, these types of rooms and recording studios is where I want to be for like mm -hmm. the rest of my life. And I think I started to realize early on that it wasn't necessarily... I have to be an artist in these situations. I was just as enamored by his work awesome. in the studio and placing microphones and things like that. And so that was just as interesting to me. Yeah, I was like, no matter what it takes, I just want to be in these rooms. If I'm an artist, great. If I'm not, fine. So it's like you had your hand in both <clears throat> kind of yeah. fields. Do you think it's benefited you that you're that you you've got experience from being an artist and also a producer so when an artist comes into the studio you kind of know what they want or you're better able to guide them because you have that experience i think so i do think so i think that my producing style and there's there's tons of different definitions of that term and tons of different ways people go about that mm -hmm. mine is very like artist sympathetic okay. you know yeah I think I'm really good at reading when people are uncomfortable mm -hmm. or when people are really excited and feeling extremely creative all of a sudden and so I feel like I'm good at bringing that out of people mm -hmm. and cultivating it and capturing it in a timely matter <laughs> also you know like <laughs> yeah that's kind of one thing it's like the studio you can get pretty swept away by all the possibilities and all the fun stuff you can do uh -huh. but at the end of the day you know you're really just trying to record a song as best you possibly can being able to read people but then also keep an eye on the clock and make sure that you're right. finishing what you need to finish at the same time i mean i've had to kick people out of the room when they're not <laughs> you know what i mean like you just you have to read people really really well and so yeah. if there's someone in the room that's making someone uncomfortable mm -hmm. they have yeah, to go yes. you know like it's hard when you're in recording studios and there's interns and Oftentimes they're there, they really want to learn, mm -hmm. but it's just making someone really uncomfortable. They're trying to do vocals or really struggling with a guitar part or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. You kind of have to make a change. And yeah, I can refer back to when I was an artist and I could read the room and figure out, like, why am I so uncomfortable right now? Or, yeah. You know, just trying to temper that kind of stuff. I never thought about it from that perspective. I've also never been in a studio, so mm -hmm. it's cool to hear about that. Can we talk about White Violet? Sure. So my sister, she said she remembers you when she was in college and mentions that she remembered you were producing albums for your friends in the studio. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you start doing that? Yeah. So I got an internship at a recording studio in Athens called <laughs> Chase Park Transduction. I got an internship when I was in high school. So that's kind of right in between the two albums that I did with Andy Baker. I think I interned there for maybe six months and then oh. David gave me a key wow. and I was able to learn the studio like at night with my own songs. Mm -hmm. And then soon after that, I was able to bring in my own clients. So lucky me, my best friend had a pretty steep allowance from his dad nice. and uh, also <laughs> wrote cool songs. Yeah. So we were able just to rent the studio and my friend Nick Light was the first person I recorded there. It was cool. It was all his songs and I just recorded everything. And then soon after that, I started getting kind of a good amount of work just because Basically how it works is that when you start working in a recording studio, oftentimes you're a house engineer, okay. meaning that tons of people just reach out to the studio to record and it kind of goes down the chain. So like the first person would get dibs would be David Barbie and then the next person underneath him and then it'd kind of go down and down and down. And then so oftentimes you just get thrown gigs, maybe not the best gigs in the world, but uh -huh. still great for experience. So yeah, because of that, I was just one of the house engineers there. So I started getting busy recording people. And then at the same time, of course, you can book your own clients and bring them in. 
is there a difference between a producer and a house engineer? So like would David be the quote producer and then at the time you were the studio engineer or the house engineer? Yes and no. Okay. So like each person is like an engineer is capable of being a producer. Okay. Any anyone. The thing that makes the decision is really the artist. And so I guess we're a little bit jumping ahead, but like Sorry. so now when I work with a band or a band comes and says they want to work with me, one of the first conversations we have is what do you want from me? Oftentimes, number one, it's an engineer. They'd need somebody to record them. But beyond that, do you want me to act as a producer in any shape or form? Okay. That can be so many different things. Like that can be as extreme as, okay, so for three weeks I'm coming to your house and we're gonna like just work on demos together. And like, that's when I would make choices about this key feels a little strange for your voice. Let's try it up higher or try it lower. The tempo is a little pushed or pulled. Let's shorten sections of songs, rewrite sections of songs. Like it can be really extreme or it can just be, I need somebody to hire a lead guitar player for the session and kind of dial in sounds. Uh -huh. And so that can generally be also a producer role. Producer is like a strange term. It can mean a lot of different things and also can mean completely different things between genres of music. Oh, really? Yeah, so if you're talking to someone that exclusively works in hip hop, uh -huh. a producer is the person that writes the beat, basically. They write the entire instrumental work. So that's super different from what mine is in the you know indie rock and rock world that I live in. I don't write the songs. I can, like I just mentioned, I can you know make suggestions and we can sort of work out parts if they're not quite working. Mm -hmm. But typically my role is the, we need the drums to sound like this on this song. We need a slower song for the album. I also, like I was saying, I kind of have to keep an eye on the clock too because right. they've hired me to say, we only have enough money to be in the studio for two weeks and we need 15 songs recorded. So that's my job to make sure that when that two-week mark hits, uh -huh. we have 15 songs recorded. How do you space out if you're in the studio and let's say, how do, can you tell if you're on track or you're behind and how much time per set or per session do you do typically? Like, yeah. does that make sense? Mm -hmm. At this point, I like to do a workflow. Back in the day, a really, it's, it's still a common workflow where basically yeah. you have two days set aside at the beginning to get, record all the drums for okay. an entire album. And then the next day you move on to bass and uh -huh. then you move on to guitars. That works cool. I personally like to work where it's a song a day, which also talks to your question where it is really obvious if we're behind. Right. Yeah, right? that's great. Yeah. yeah. And so it does a couple of things that I really, really like. It helps us keep on track. The goal is very clear. We have to have this song tracked by the end of the day. Okay. Overdubs and vocals, everything, if you can. But it also makes it so that all the sounds feel really cohesive. It's like, let's start with the drums. Okay, cool. Like These are the drum sounds that we've decided on. Mm -hmm. Those are going to help us decide what the bass needs to feel like. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to help us decide. The bass and the drums are going to help us decide the guitars. And then so on and so forth. And basically, by the end, you have a really cohesive feel. Whereas if you do all the drums one day, all the bass another day, mixing is where those things kind of come alive. Where... Generally, you get a drum sound for the entire album, meaning mm -hmm. that it's like somewhere in the middle. Okay. You're not pushing it very hard. Like you're not like, oh, these drums need to be distorted for the song. These mm -hmm. drums need to be really clean. You're somewhere in the middle there so that in mixing you can distort them. I just think it's more of an immediate excitement thing uh -huh. for everyone involved if you do it one song in a day. So then we decide, these drums are distorted, let's distort them right now. So all day long, we're hearing what it kind of sounds like when it's mixed. It sounds closer to a record that way. So I run into this problem when I'm editing podcast episodes mm -hmm. and I'll sit and I'll edit for something like for, I don't know, five hours at a time. And sure. then I've listened to it so much, it mm. starts to not sound like anything anymore. Definitely. Do you ever run into that problem in the studio? Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> okay. for sure. What do you do? Just got to be good at taking breaks. Yeah, <laughs> okay. really. And then um, the other thing that is helpful is references. Okay. Always listening to, you know, because like when you're editing a podcast or when mm -hmm. I'm mixing a song, effectively you're just off on an island somewhere. You know what I mean? You do start to detach from reality <laughs> and how things translate <laughs> out there, uh -huh. you know. But a quick just walk outside or mm -hmm. a quick check of Spotify or wherever, like if you listen to another podcast that you're familiar with or if I listen to a song that I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. I'll immediately know 
whoa, I am so far gone right now. <laughs> yeah. And then it will give me cues to how to get back. That kind of sounds so, like a drug trip. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've never tried that, so I'm going to try that next time you yeah, should, when yeah. I'm editing. Yeah. You can um, easily lose perspective. Yeah, for sure, yeah, big time. It's like when you say a word so many times, it doesn't sound like a word anymore, and you forget the meaning of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We're getting too meta here, my bad. It's uh, <laughs> just weird. So we got into recording, and then we kind of got off talking about your background, but I wanted to hear more about it. Yeah. Can we talk about White Violet? Please, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah sure. So take it away. Um, what is White Violet and how did it start? I had been writing a lot of songs when I was 20. Mm-hmm. I started having a pretty good amount of songs, and I started playing live. At that time, it was... I'm trying to remember the timeline of when I named it, but it basically came out of a solo project, and I wanted to kind of shed the stereotype of just a guy's name, you uh-huh. know? I felt like the songs were deeper than that. I didn't want someone just to be like, oh, it's Nate Nelson. Oh, he's a songwriter. Cool. Yeah. He just sits on a bench and plays acoustic guitar. <laughs> and so the songs were different than that and mm-hmm. had more depth. And so I just wanted it to, I wanted to come up with a moniker basically to find that. And so my sister was good help. It was funny. I just kept putting it off, had a bunch of ideas. And mm-hmm. then I found myself out at a bar with my sister, my really good friend, Jay Steele, mm-hmm. who at the time was sort of managing me, and then another person that was playing in the band. And we were just like, let's name the band right now. We're not leaving this table till we name it. There's a thing in audio, there's white noise, there's pink noise, there's violet noise, there's mm-hmm. white, you know, all, all these types of different naturally occurring noises, and they all have different EQ curves and stuff like that. There's violet noise and there's white noise. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought of that. And then also white violet is an actual flower. So Ooh. the short answer when people ask where the band name came from, yeah. it's a flower. Uh, <laughs> the other one is that it's a funny audio phenomenon. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's how white violet was named. And then I had all these songs and I was really excited about making a record. And then I got the really cool opportunity to go out and play bass with my friend Maria Taylor, who is an incredible songwriter and really inspiring to me. And she asked me to do her whole album cycles Mm -hmm. worth of touring. And so I ended up leaving for about four months with her and just touring and playing bass with her, which is such a cool experience. And what it did actually was I had maybe five songs before I left. And while I was gone the whole time, just playing her songs and having to take a break from my own music was actually something I really, really needed. So as soon as I got home, I was just full of music and touring wow. and excitement. And I finished writing the record really, really quickly. And we mentioned David Barbie. Mm-hmm. He recorded probably the first seven songs on that album. And he ended up playing bass on it, too. So what? the first album was me with all the songs and then me having kind of a handful of players that I really admired and liked, David, of course, being one of them. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of made it work in the studio. So mm-hmm. it definitely came together in the studio. And then we finished the album. And then I was lucky enough to get picked up by a record label to put it out. And then that was kind of off to the races then. We started doing a, a good amount of touring with it. I did a second record and then a, a third record. The mm-hmm. second record was done in the studio called the Fidelitorium in North Carolina. Cool. That was really cool because that was the dream recording situation for me where we just went to it's basically a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Oh, the wow. studio is really beautiful, and then there's a cabin right next to it. Sounds like North um, Carolina. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so we were there for about two and a half weeks, and then we just left for the record, which was so cool. Every day just making music. And the third one, that's when my personal engineering producing stuff started getting pretty busy. And so I felt like I needed to record it myself, mm-hmm. the third one. So I took a little bit of money and invested in my studio. And then that's how I recorded it myself and put it out. Do you like recording or producing with other people more or self-producing or does it depend on the situation? I like them both. Okay. <laughs> One is much harder than the other. Right. Recording yourself is very, very hard. And so kind of what I was getting at, the first two albums, I basically hired engineers just because I wanted just to be an artist. I didn't yeah. want to really think about anything. I mm-hmm. just wanted to kind of verbally say what I'm looking for and then just trust the people that I hired. And so I just got to play music. And the third one, I was like, all right, I, I have to do this myself. Uh-huh. And it was a really cool experience. There's an interesting story with how we released that record. And oh, please tell. So 
we did two records and and it was done pretty like traditionally with a record label basically the record label gives you advance you stop touring you go and record the thing and then they put it out all at once and then you go and tour and you just kind of hope for the best i just started to notice that that's a pretty traditional old school way of doing it Mm -hmm. you know and it didn't necessarily fare our band very well I don't think it fares smaller bands very well, period. Like you're trying to build anticipation where there's oftentimes not any anticipation. And then once it's out, it's just out. And it's a week later, 500 more albums come out. You just kind of quickly get buried, you know? (laughs) And so my thought was, well, we always do pretty well with premieres like Mm -hmm. single premieres so like at the beginning of the album cycle we would always get cool music video premieres and things like that why don't we release this record like hip-hop records are released now where it's just singles at a time but then i of course had to make it more complicated and more stress on myself (laughs) by by saying the story of the album is that it's being written in real time as it's coming out so (laughs) basically (laughs) i had the guy that worked for my label come to my house and i was like here are the two first songs of the album. All I have is two songs, mm-hmm. basically. I have a couple of demos and ideas, but basically these are the only two that are done. I want to record these two, and then I'm going to release them, and then I want to, in real time, write and record them in response to them being out, basically. Yeah. And so at that time, it was just myself and then my dear friend, Brad Morgan, who's the other writing member of White Violet. And so... We just kind of hired other players if we needed them, but just the two of us did everything else. Those first two songs came out, and we thought of them like A-side, B-sides. The A-side would be more of like the singly thing, and the other one would be more of just like a response to it. Mm -hmm. That's cool. But as it went out, you know, we're like, okay, so the second song is this song called Both of Our Views. It's kind of like a repetitive, mid-tempo dance song almost, and then it's like, so what comes after that? And then so we wrote that song. And then it just kept going, and there was about four months in between every release so that I had the time to write songs, (laughs) (laughs) record them, mix them, and master them, and then put them out. It was pretty wild. It was a crazy experience. I mean, there was a couple times where I was in the studio. I had booked Chase Park at 4 a.m. I was supposed to turn in a final mix, Uh and I would send an email saying, like, this isn't going to happen. I don't even have lyrics for this song. We had to push it back. That happened tons of times. So if you were publicizing it too at the time, how did you tell people, oh, this is going to be a minute longer? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. We just pushed it back and okay. just hoped that people were still paying attention. And, okay. Um, it was a really wild experience. Like I don't think I would do it again, but it was <laughs> cool experience. I definitely think it was awesome. And hey, good on New West Records for allowing me to do such a crazy thing. Yeah. You know? was kind of the wildest thing they had ever done either. Uh-huh. And they were totally down to try it. I think at that point, and honestly still now, the music industry is just like kind of all ears because no one really knows what to do right. and how to release records and make it sustainable for people. So they were just kind of like, sure, let's just try it. We have nothing to lose. And standing out is like such a good thing to do within this industry because you know it's always fun to be the first person to create something or start something that people copy you from right and this is very on brand with you just being unique and stuff because now i'm thinking about everybody switching out in the yeah Yeah, very cool yeah um so you mentioned touring can we talk Mm -hmm. about your experiences Mm -hmm. on the road and you know where you went who who you toured with and then when you toured yourself with white violet yeah i mean the biggest most consistent touring was that album cycle I did with my friend Maria and that was a solid six weeks in the US and then another five in Europe no way it was amazing yeah I was 21 I was just wide-eyed the whole time so excited yeah it was amazing White Violet was more of kind of short run kind of thing I feel like the longest one we did was maybe three weeks I mean that's a long time to be in a van and we would tour with our friends Future Birds mm-hmm. a good yeah. bit and a lot of just really great bands from around. Mm-hmm. Lee Baines and the Glory Fires is a mm-hmm. guy from Birmingham. He's so cool. And a band in town called Dega a okay. good bit. Another band called Semicircle are still around uh-huh. working. And so it would be more like Future Birds was a bigger one for sure. Mm-hmm. But our idea was that let's just find bands that are small like us mm-hmm. and then let's get all of our powers together and try and go play 
you know, tour to New York and back or something. When I lived in Nashville, it was really easy to go to Chicago. And so mm-hmm. we would do a run where start in Nashville, go up to Chicago, over to New York, down to Athens, and then come back. Sounds so, like a cool little Yeah, loop. it was a nice little loop. But, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, touring is hard. I n- liked it. <laughs> I didn't love it. You okay. know, I mean, it was so cool to just have your day revolve around playing music. But mm-hmm. the hard fact about it is that your day does revolve around playing music. However, music only lasts for an hour a day. Yeah. And then the other 23 hours is just sort of figuring out. Yeah, yeah. driving, sleeping in a van, finding a bar, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, it just kind of got a little a little old for me. But the actual music part, of course, is like so great. And you could ask anybody. I think they, a lot of them would feel the same way. But I just remember touring with bands that were just so much better at touring than I was. Like Future Burst, those guys, I mean, they're still just like so prolific in that department. Mm -hmm. And I admire them so much. They're just professional touring musicians, and it's really impressive. What does a professional touring musician entail or mean? I think they're just cool with being gone all the time. And like they're, they're so good at putting on great shows, and that lifestyle just really suits them. Whereas, you know, Kind of like I've said in the beginning of this, recording my music and recording other people's music or recording other people versus like being the artist. I was always cool with both sides of it. Mm -hmm. And so it was the same with touring. If I was gone for more than a week, all I wanted to do was get back in the studio. And if I was in the studio for more than a week, all I wanted to do was go and play shows. And so I think it was a good yin and yang workflow where they both suited each other pretty Mm -hmm. well. You could have a nice balance. Yeah. You mentioned that you lived in Nashville. Mm Mm-hmm. What made you move out to Nashville? What made you decide to leave Athens and try a new city? Athens felt like it was getting so small that I couldn't breathe. Love, love Athens. I'm so happy to be back now. Uh But yeah, at the time, it was just, you know, I I grew up here. I'd been here forever. I met my now wife, and we were together and feeling similar things, too. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking for a city that was bigger, but not like the end-all, be-all place. And Nashville seemed like it kind of checked all those boxes. We also had a good amount of friends move there. A couple of the Future Bird guys had moved there. Another friend of mine who's a recording engineer was moving there on the same time. It just kind of seemed like a good step forward, but not anything insane that we couldn't handle. So yeah, we moved there and then my record label had an office there mm-hmm. and my booking agency at mm-hmm. the time was also there. So it just kind of seemed like a good move. So yeah, when I, when I moved there, I just was recording a bunch at my house and mm-hmm. just trying to meet people. And when I moved there, White Violet was my primary focus. And then recording started kind of taking off a little bit where I started uh, becoming a house engineer at a studio called The Bomb Shelter. It's a That's really cool, cool studio. Yeah. yeah. The owner of that place did the first Alabama Shakes record. Wow. So it was a really popular studio, and, and it was a really cool place to be. It kind of reminded me a lot of Chase Park, where mm-hmm. it was just like, by design, it's not like the most fancy, perfect-looking studio because they don't want to be. And at the same time, they keep the day rate really low so that just, like, anybody can come record. Because there's so many studios that, like, if you left your water cup on the table, they'll kill you or something. You know what I mean? It's just, like, so not conducive for creativity. And this place is the opposite of that. It's just, like, whatever you need, just do your thing. It was a converted house in East Nashville. So the whole house was a recording studio. It was such a cool vibe. So, yeah, I worked there a bunch. And then I also did audio for a, a filmmaker there called Joshua Shoemaker. And then from there, we moved to Atlanta. And then that's when I started building up my home studio big time just to focus more on mixing mm-hmm. at that time, just because I had a lot of clients in Nashville that would just record themselves and then I could mix records from my house. At that time, it was kind of interesting moving from Nashville to Atlanta and Athens where Nashville, it's kind of like built into the economy there. If you start a band, then you immediately have to save up to go to a recording studio, which is awesome for recording studios. Whereas Athens and Atlanta and other places, people are just more self-sufficient or they're just more DIY and they just like want to just do it themselves. And so that's kind of when it's like, cool, you can record yourself, but please let me mix it for you. you (laughs) Let me help you in that department a little bit. 
Yeah, and then from there, I've moved back to Athens recently. That's awesome. You mentioned your record label and then mm-hmm. your studio. What's the name of your record label and then your studio? Uh, well, so I, d- I didn't own a record label. Oh, okay. It's the or, record label that I was on. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. That yeah. was, uh, it's called Normal Town Records, okay. which is a, a oh, part nice. of New West Records. Okay, yeah. it, it reminds me of Normal Town here. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's why. That's why? Yeah. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. cool, awesome. Their um, office is in Normal Town. That, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <you're good. laughs> Yeah, so I have always kept a home studio everywhere okay. I go. And so even when I lived in Athens, I, when I was working at Chase Park, a couple of things happened where I was realizing that the recordings that are made sounded really good, mm-hmm. but then I was just trying to be critical of myself. And I'm like, is it, do they just sound good because all this gear is so expensive, you know? <laughs> and at the same time, I started having a lot of clients that couldn't necessarily afford Chase mm-hmm. Park. I just made a deal with those clients where it's like, okay, well, we can go to a small home studio of mine and we can track a lot of stuff and then we can come back to Chase Park to mix. And so I built out a little tiny studio with just some gear of mine. And mm-hmm. that's when I feel like I really learned engineering really, really well. Because mm-hmm. it, like I said, it's like $20,000 signal chain at Chase Park sounds pretty good. Uh-huh. But then a $100 one back at my house, you got to work a little harder. And I so imagine. I just kind of had to figure out placement of microphones and mm-hmm. just how to capture things well, which mm-hmm. then in turn made me a better engineer at Chase Park. So I always kept a really powerful home studio just mm-hmm. for people as an option for artists and also for myself so I could write constantly and record constantly. It's just gone everywhere with me. It was in Athens. It was a separate from my house. And then in Nashville, two different houses. It had an extra bedroom, and it was in there. In Atlanta, I closed in a garage and built out a That's proper cool. studio, uh, which was really, really good. That was the biggest one I had ever had. And it was easy to record, you know, like a five-piece band, which yeah. is really cool. And so now I have a studio in my basement in Athens. Mm-hmm. And because I have access to other big recording studios in Athens that now my space is really just a mixing space and an overdub studio. So I can do vocals and guitars and any synthesizers and keys and things like that. But Mm -hmm. drums and like big room sound things, we'll just go to a studio for that. Primarily, it's just like kind of a nice, really good sounding mixing space. That's really cool. For clients, yeah. How do you go about making a studio like soundproofing it what are the steps mm-hmm. that you need to take in order to know like this is how it's supposed to sound and get the sure. best quality possible yeah there's a lot of science that goes into it there's a lot of just kind of know where to place your monitors and uh-huh. your speakers and yeah i mean there's a lot of measurement tools and things mm-hmm. like that but but more importantly it's just understanding how like if you're mixing if you hear something in your room and you think it sounds really really good mm-hmm. and then you go listen to your car and it sounds really bad so for instance like mixing in my room it sounds great and then i go to my car and realize that there's no bass that will tell you that your room has tons of low end issues okay meaning that you're hearing more low end than's actually coming out of the speakers because your room is resonating and so you won't pull the bass up in your mix harder than you should and so that would tell you that you need to have some absorption and stuff that'll like soak up low frequencies and um thick fiberglass stuff called Owings Corning 703. It's like the it's like the flagship stuff that people build walls out of and things. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously there's the opposite too, where there's way too much bass. Then it's like, oh, I can't actually hear bass in my room. Every time I set up a studio, you know, at this point I know the gear really, really well. So mm-hmm. you kind of eliminate that. I know what my speakers sound like mm-hmm. really, really well. And so I can kind of tell by listening to them in a new room okay, there's like some low-end issues or like there's some whatever, things okay. like that. Low-end so, is usually the hardest one. That's interesting. I didn't know there were, yeah. I don't know a lot is what I'm learning through this. Sure, yeah. That's good, yeah. Um, when you're in a studio with an artist and they don't know where they want to go with the song or they're kind of like, hey, I don't know what I want to do with this, how do you guide them? What do you do and how much do you help them? And then where do you stop yourself? Because you're like, well, maybe... I don't want to take their sound away from them. You, you sure. Know? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing is that it is a conversation early on. It's like, mm-hmm. how much do you want me to play a role in this thing? And, and so let's just, for the sake of this conversation, we'll say that they are like, I want you all in. Do everything that you can. In that case, oftentimes, another thing that I'll do before I start an album with a band is have them make a Spotify playlist oh. of songs that they really, really like. 
And it could be as simple as, I like the vocal effect on this song, it, even if it's like a you know house song and we're recording mm-hmm. like a punk record or something. It doesn't matter. Kind of just get out the ideas that you have. And so if you're having an issue with the song, you can always refer back to these references that you just know. Like, I know that they like this kind of drum sound or like I know that they like this kind of a vocal effect. There's a lot of different tricks that I'll like to do to kind of get people inspired more. Oftentimes a, a click track is usually where you start, which is literally just a metronome, which tells you the tempo. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the songwriter play. A really common thing is acoustic guitar singing and playing the song just mm-hmm. as like the skeleton of the song to the tempo. And then you track a lot of stuff to that. In that situation, I like to not use a click track and I'll use a drum machine. The drum machine isn't necessarily playing anything different than what the actual drummer would play, but Mm -hmm. it does a lot of different things where it makes the songwriter way more, it's way more exciting, obviously, to play to a drum machine than it is just like, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) That's not fun to play to. They also play better just because it sounds like a drummer. They're used to hearing a drummer. But it also can open up a lot of doors down the road where, so we have this drum machine that everyone has played to, maybe on the bridge the acoustic drums completely mute. Everything mutes and we have this drum machine still. It is still a useful track that you can use later that you wouldn't necessarily have if you didn't have that idea early on. Another thing is writing, coming up with a cool sound, like a drone note for the song. Like a lot of times there's at least one note that can kind of play through an entire chord progression. It doesn't have to change. It never becomes dissonant. It's called a drone note. And so sometimes I'll make just like a sound, soundscape or something from a guitar or synthesizer or something mm-hmm. that's just like a really interesting sound that just plays through the entire song. Mm-hmm. And it, it just gives them something else to work off of, even if that sound ultimately just gets muted. But it could lead you to, oh, whoa, that feels really cool. Why don't we indulge in that and do it some other way somewhere else? Just little things like that can kind of interrupt any sort of, stoppage of creativity just kind of keeps it moving for sure you use a lot of terminology that i have not heard Mm -hmm. of before so that's really interesting yeah you've mentioned before too mixing mastering overdubs for people who may not know what that is could you explain that i always describe tracking is sort of trying not to be too reductive but Uh tracking is sort of like decorating your house it's sort of like okay i'm gonna paint the walls this color i'm gonna buy this couch and all these things tracking is like accumulating all the things you need for a song mixing is designing your room basically the couch goes over here this wall is this color the lamp is right here it's just finding the place for all of those tracks so you find like the individuality of the drum kit in this one song, how it sounds. And then that leads itself to like, the bass needs to be really bright and maybe have like a slap delay on it or something because it feels good with the drums. It's more of like the puzzle, putting all the pieces together. Mastering is the finalizing of it. Mastering is probably the most scientific of any of them. What it does is it sets the actual output level of a song. Mm -hmm. So Spotify streaming things have a certain volume regulation level that Mm -hmm. they operate at and if it's above that they'll turn it down and if it's below that they'll turn it up which is not usually a good thing so you usually want to shoot to be at this exact number and so that's what mastering engineers are worried about they're also concerned with i mix 10 songs for an album Mm -hmm. they're concerned with making sure that all 10 songs have a similar output level and also a, a similar tonal balance is what we call it so it's like if one song is really bassy and another song is really, really bright with a lot of high end, they sort of equalize those two things, make them feel consistent through an album. What are all the instruments that you play? Drums. Uh, okay, I'll say this with a caveat that I feel like from early on, I wanted to be somewhat proficient in every instrument, but okay. not necessarily like the greatest person in every instrument. Right. So keep that in mind when I give you this list. <laughs> okay. Uh, drums, bass, guitar, keys, uh-huh. singing. I guess that's, that's about it. I would say right now, drums are my first instrument. Then I learned guitar. That became my first instrument. Through touring with White Violet, I kind of got really burnt out with guitar and got really interested in synthesizers and keys and things. Mm -hmm. So sort of focused my energy there. And 
bass is a huge one for me. So right now, if I were to tell you the two things I'm most comfortable and most excited by would uh-huh. be bass and, and keys. But I like to think about, if you ask any good engineer or producer, mm-hmm. they all can kind of play most things. Oh, okay. And they, it's not that they're the best at those things, but they at least know how to play the instrument so that it can be recorded well. And so I do not classify myself as a drummer, mm-hmm. but I could play drums and I do hit the drums the way I want a drummer to hit the drums. So like cymbals are really loud things and drums are like the thing you actually want to hear and the mm-hmm. cymbal isn't. And so like a little thing where it's like, you know, it just hit the cymbals quieter than you hit the snare drum. Those types of things are like how engineers think of playing music. Okay. So I know enough to be able to tell someone how to modify their part if, if necessary or things like that. Like I can speak drummer terms, you know, to <laughs> drummers, but no one's going to hire me to play drums on their record. And oh. they shouldn't ever do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. I guess my dreams yeah. of being a producer or an audio engineer are out the window because I barely play guitar. So. Oh, that's okay. There's plenty of, like I said, there's so many different versions of producers out there, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I mean, back in the day, I'm close with a guy named John Snyder who's a very famous old producer. He did Etta James recordings and a lot of really impressive jazz recordings. Mm-hmm. And... John is by trade a, a trumpetist, but oh, wow. but he's more a producer. But his producing is not technical. Mm-hmm. Like he worked in a day where a producer and an engineer was very much two different people. Okay. Whereas now with budgets being low and things like that, oftentimes you have to be everything for everyone, uh-huh. you know? And so John just lived in a day where he was just a producer. So you just got to like sit in the live room right next to Etta James and like- wow talk to her like this while she was singing, not in the control room. Those are like the mystics of the producers. And this, even somebody like Rick Rubin is like one of those famous producers. Uh-huh. That guy doesn't know even what microphones are. What? Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong about that, but <laughs> I've heard interviews with him where he's just like, I don't know. That's yeah. not my job. My yeah. job's to like make the song powerful. You know, so kind of like a creative director in a way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Who would you say is your biggest production influence? Hmm. Um, Big question. It is, yeah. I'm influenced by people like, there's a guy named Daniel Lenoir who did Joshua Tree by U2 mm-hmm. and he's done Bob Dylan records. And I'm mostly inspired by him because he is a technical guy. He is an engineer. He's a musical guy. He plays tons of really cool instruments. And he also makes his own music. And so his music really his taste and shows up on other people's albums and you go to Daniel Noir for like his thing. I like his producing just as much as the engineering too, where he makes a lot of really cool ambient music mm-hmm. and the ambient music, like the mixing process of the ambient music is just as much of the performance as actually playing the parts. So you see videos of him mixing and he's just, kind of just like moving the faders, just mm-hmm. bringing things in for tension and then getting rid of them and bringing up these delay sounds and bring, getting mm-hmm. rid of them. And that's how he mixes people's records too. And it's just like really, really cool. But yeah, he just kind of puts people in weird positions. I heard an interview with him talking about a Bob Dylan record he did. And the name of the album is slipping my mind. But basically Bob just had these songs and he just wanted to put Bob Dylan in a place that he had never been before. So mm-hmm. they rented a house, I think, Daniel Lamar was living in New Orleans at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they just rented this house for Bob and they had set up the whole house like a recording studio. Mm-hmm. And they gave him all of these really serious boxes to live in. So it was like the only bass sound is this Moog bass sound. That's it. That's the only sound we can use for bass. And then Bob, you have to sit in the kitchen, play acoustic guitar <laughs> right here. And then there's this drum machine coming at you, and that's mm-hmm. that's where your parts will be recorded. It was just cool that he just kind of designed this whole world just for the recording process and yeah. what they got in the end was great. When you hear about producers that you like, do you mm-hmm. feel like you take inspiration from what they've done and then kind of create your own out of that? Yeah. That might be a leading question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I am constantly trying to make better work for everyone. And so, yeah, coming up with new angles and new things and not being derivative. But at the end of the day, all those tricks and things like that, 
if they work awesome if they don't that's okay too it's the only thing that matters and you can't lose sight that you're being hired it's a service industry and like the client is the boss and they have to just leave with something that they're most excited about and so i always am kind of goes back to that conversation that i'd have with somebody where you tell me what you want from me and that's okay if it changes but just tell me where to start and mm -hmm. you know I could come up with the coolest idea anyone could ever have for this one artist, but they also just might not like it, and that's okay. You mm -hmm. just you, you still have to keep going. You still have to come up with something that will make the record great. And so I think it's good to have a lot of things in your back pocket of things like what you talked about. That's a very real situation where there's a songwriter and everyone's just stuck. You can mm -hmm. just feel it in the room that everyone's stuck and uninspired and not excited by anything. And so how do you break them out of that? That's usually when you grab for some tricks. But what are your tricks that you use for those instances? Let's go take a break. Uh -huh. <laughs> take a <laughs> let's listen to stuff that we like, uh -huh. you know, let's, I don't know, let's just try something completely different. Let's try an idea that we think isn't going to work and try and make it work. And then that can just crack open a awesome. bunch of other things. Or if it's the guitar player is just not feeling anything that day, mm -hmm. that's okay, man. Like, let's just get it tomorrow. Like, it's fine. Let's move on to something else, you mm -hmm. know, or like you can tell the singer is not particularly excited to sing this song okay well let's find a time where you are i'm working with a band right now in the middle of making a record for them and the singer is by my opinion one of the best singers i've ever recorded oh wow by his account he's really just hates singing in the studio he hates singing he hates the whole process of it yeah it's interesting but I can't just like shower him with compliments and, uh -huh. and all that stuff. Like that doesn't really work for him. It's right. it's more like, okay, well, let's just find the time when you're really feeling it. Because I can tell sometimes where he'll push it off and off and mm -hmm. it's like midnight and he hasn't sang yet. It's like, okay, well, let's just find the time during the day where it does feel good. And then maybe we'll sing three songs in a row or something. Yeah, just kind of like feeling people out. It kind of sounds, this is a weird comparison, but it kind of sounds like you're a coach. In sure. a sense, like, you, yeah. you know when to push somebody and you know when yeah. to lay off. And, you know, with your specific athlete, you have to know what works for them versus what works for somebody else and then be able to motivate them to get what they need to do done. That's absolutely what it's like. Yeah, for sure. Totally. There's so much psychology that goes into mm -hmm. making records. And, and knowing how to read people, too. It seems yeah. Like. Some people are easier to read than others. You know? Yeah. I love that because I was a psych major, so cool. hearing kind of that, too, and the way people work and how to interact with people and communicate effectively, that's just really interesting to hear from the musical perspective because I am not privy to that. Can we talk about what you're doing now and projects that you're working on? Because you mentioned sure. you've been really busy when we were walking up, so yeah. what have you been busy doing? This week is the finalizing week for a record for a band called Hefner in awesome. town. Yeah, they played at 40 Watt a couple weeks ago. Yeah, they're a very cool band. I love those guys as people, and I think they're such a good band. It's been a real pleasure working with them. So we're finalizing mixes for that. And then next month, so just in a couple of weeks, we're starting the third record for them. The first record came out. I worked a little bit on that. And then the second one is the one we're mixing. And then we're about to start the third one. So they're super prolific, creative guys. It's really fun. I'm in the middle of making a record for another band in town called Low Talker. They are also incredible to work with. The band dynamic is different than Hefner, like any of them. Low Talker has been doing it a lot longer than, than Hefner, and they've just been in big studio situations a lot more, uh, just because they're older. So they really know what they want, which is really cool. Not to say Hefner doesn't know what they want, because they absolutely do know what they want. It's just a different way of creating in the studio. Low Talker comes with everything already demoed and already kind of basically realized. And so more than anything, my job is to capture it and make it larger than it, larger than life than it was before, really bring it alive. But they did a lot of homework and demoing before they came into the studio. Whereas Hefner, there's two principal songwriters in the band and they come in really prepared, but it's more of not necessarily like, here's my demo, here's the song. It's more of theoretical thinking out loud. So it's a lot of real time problem solving, which is really fun and creative. Oftentimes it lands in a different spot than what we set out for it to land in, but mm -hmm. it's since everyone of the band is so creative and involved in the process that it just lands and everyone's really excited by it. I 
have just a couple like one-off songs and things mm-hmm. like that with other artists that I'm wrapping up. But the main thing that I do, I do this full time, is I teach at a audio production school called Tweet Recording. Yeah, I was hoping yeah. you bring that up. <laughs> yeah. So Tweet Recording is a 18-week, so semester-long audio program. So we teach everything from the science of sound, audio fundamentals, all the way up to mixing and mastering studio recording, electronic music production. So we teach Ableton Live and Pro Tools. And there's some business stuff in there too. The business stuff is mostly settled around what you need to know as an engineer and producer. So it's a lot of like splits agreements and the kind of agreements that you have to have signed for when you hire artists to come play on songs and things like that. But that is super fun. Teaching is not something that I thought I would do. But now that I do it, it is, like, so rewarding and so fun. And basically all I get to do is just sit around with, like, 18-year-old to 25-year-olds that are just, like, trying to start recording. And it's, like, really fun to get them going and teach them all this stuff. And then also kind of like a producing a record, you just kind of see where their strengths lie and their interests. And it's interesting to see is, like, you think early on, like, oh, this kid's going to want to go work in a studio. And then at the end of it, they just want to score music for f- short films or oh, something. okay. Like, cool that's awesome yeah when you're teaching do you ever see people that remind you of how you were back at like 18 17 18 and does it take you back definitely yeah Yeah. for sure absolutely yeah there's a couple of students there's uh he's an engineer in town now rowan o'reilly i i love rowan he's so cool he's probably 19 now forgive me rowan if you hear this and you're not that (laughs) age but but he plays in a band called monsoon and he plays in like four other bands also around town he is recording at a small studio called Gift Horse. He reminds me a lot where it's like just playing in a billion bands and constantly recording and just con- just like all you care about and all you want to do is just be busy with music. So yeah, it's really awesome. He's a really talented kid. So have you ever worked with an artist who was part of a big record label and did that ever control what the sound that they were going to make out of an album? What we've learned in, in the Inbus program was that sometimes... For example, like the artist Michelle Branch, who was really big back in the early 2000s, she was signed to a record label and wanted to release this album or these songs. And they're like, that doesn't fit with mm-hmm. the vibe that we want to yeah. produce. So does that ever affect when you're in the studio, like what they can make? And uh, can you talk about that either? I don't know if you're um, going to be tired, tied on that. I, in all honesty, I haven't worked in that situation. Okay. Luckily, yeah. I have tons of friends that have had that happen to them. A good friend of mine, she signed, honestly, a deal that's probably similar to in the probably same era as the person you just mentioned. And it was awful. I mean, it was the kind of major label thing, and it gave her, like, so much money. The budget didn't even matter. Where do you want to go record? Oh, cool, we'll fly you to Abbey Road and Whoa. get you a symphony to uh-huh. record on your record. And it's like, and then it just didn't sell, and she got tabled, and she just now got out from under wow. that deal. Yeah. Where so now she can actually make a record under her own name. Wow. And so that's one of the worst ones I've heard. And luckily, she's she's great, and I'm actually helping her make a record now, and that she can finally do it under her name. And she's so talented; she needs to be making records. And so, yeah. But personally, in the studio, I've been lucky enough to have supportive people even for my band you know Mm -hmm. it's like my record label would always come and visit the studio when we Mm -hmm. were recording but it was always very we just want you to make the thing you want to make we Mm -hmm. believe in you and you should just do what you need to do so cool and yeah i mean i've i'm working with a band that was on our label and then we started recording this one and in hopes that it would come out on that same label and they labeled didn't want to do it just for monetary reasons really more Mm -hmm. than anything and so that was a bummer and a setback for them but they're such a good band they'll be fine they'll find another home for it the funny thing that i'm realizing now is just that like labels depending on the artist and depending on how hard they're willing to work and their angles for how they're gonna work and that sort of thing i mean sometimes it just a regular doesn't make sense for people anymore so for the two bands that I'm in the middle of making records for, one I do think needs a record label because they have always been on that situation and, and it works for them. They like the the help and the office of people there to help push them. 
And the other one, they're super self-sufficient. And like you mentioned TikTok, I mean, they're all over that and they're just pushing really, really hard social media. And I think they don't really even, it's not even on their radar, really. This record we're about to finish, it's like, let's just put it out. We don't need to like see if someone wants to give us money for it. Yeah. I do think down the line, if they could do continue to rise, they'll probably will need one. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's interesting. It really is. If you don't want to sign to it like a traditional record deal, there are several different kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do a label services where mm-hmm. somebody provides, you know, all the help that they would need, but they get to keep their music like it's licensed mm-hmm. to them. They don't give away their master recording mm-hmm. um, or the composition. Is that the publishing? Publishing. It, it's and, and with the rise of TikTok and social media, like you can basically do all the things that you, a record label would do for you yourself, like you were saying. So it's yeah. just really interesting I, i'd like to ask that question because i think yeah well, what kind of i didn't ask it but it turned into that hearing your perspective on like whether or not somebody would need a record label i was just talking to a good friend of mine in town who mixes pretty huge records and mm-hmm. um oftentimes they're for major labels and, and he was just saying that like the position of like an a and r exec at a record label is mm-hmm. typically like artist and development and like you know, there to work with the artists and figure out how to grow, Mm -hmm. that isn't the same job as it used to be. Now that job is basically data management. That job is literally people in an office saying exactly what you just said. This artist is huge on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Every time they release something, it goes viral. Instagram isn't the same case. And those TikTok plays do not transfer to Spotify. Interesting. So their job is to figure out why that is happening and how to make them connect. And then at the same time, figure out where that band should go tour. So like if they do pop off on TikTok, where is that happening? And that's where they should go tour. But it's, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, nothing, you know, whatever, Newport Beach, Virginia, uh-huh. it's huge. Let's go play there. Uh-huh. You know, like, so it's a really strange way of like, it's just data now. That's super interesting yeah. just to see like how much technology has changed yeah. so many different industries and especially mm. this one, like social media, the rise of a lot. And then TikTok is the whole other beast that I don't, I need to get on that so I can promote the podcast on there, but sure. I don't even know how to use it. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the first thing that you listen for when you're listening to a new recording? Like a demo from a band? Uh-huh. It's kind of like just a first reaction, you uh-huh. know, like links of things like is it just generally compelling from the first bit um i am since i you know oftentimes if i'm in that situation they want my opinion of of things to be modified or changed or somewhat or or how we could approach things differently and so i'm kind of like in the back of my mind thinking about tempo thinking about key like when they're singing if when they sing the chorus it feels like they're pushed too hard or, or something generally just making sure that there is moments in there that can be pulled out like the last line of the course is something that's like really compelling to me or something it's like mm-hmm. okay well that's something we have to highlight really really well somehow so yeah just kind of like a grab bag of things like that i'll think of just kind of write down ideas of references or production moves that could happen but generally just i just hope that there's you know three to four really compelling moments in there Keys, tempos, all that stuff can be changed. Production tricks are production tricks more than anything. So, like, if the song isn't there, if there aren't points of really compelling work there, then you can throw every trick in the book at it, and it's just still not going to be the thing. So, yeah, just figuring out what's compelling, and then if there isn't something compelling, how do we make it compelling? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you go about the sensitive approach of telling an artist that doesn't work or yeah. that doesn't sound right. I mean, obviously you wouldn't be like, that sounds terrible, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that's most important is you can't say that without having at least two or three solutions. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you're just like, that melody isn't really feeling right to mm-hmm. me, try this, you know, or like. Maybe that melody doesn't need to be sung. Maybe it's a piano line or something, or the section's too long. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's all subjective too. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the other thing I, I keep in the back of my mind. I mean, I don't, I don't approach any situation like I know best than uh-huh. anybody. The artist has like conceived this song, so they know better than I do, like for sure. Everything I, I approach things with is is a subtle hand, just because 
you can just fire me or you can just like tell <laughs> yeah. me that this is wrong. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Totally fine with rejection in that regard, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the way that I approach artists is that temperament. It's not like, this is terrible. You have to change it to this. Hey, I'm just, just throwing ideas at the wall here. Uh-huh. Like maybe we could try this. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Have you noticed from when you started producing to where you are now in your career, have there been any significant changes or differences in the area of production? And if so, what what are some of those changes? Mm-hmm. And did you like them or do you miss like the old way of, of how things used to be done? Yeah, I am 34, but mm-hmm. I learned how to record at a studio that is at Chase Park, which is really tape-based uh-huh. and kind of like the more traditional way of recording and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and so, I, so I came from that. I learned how to mix on a console. I didn't learn how to mix in, in Pro Tools. And so a lot of those workflows carried over for mm-hmm. sure. Now my workflow is, is much more, there's a lot of technology involved in it. I do mix in the box a lot of the time. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's ever growing for mm-hmm. sure. But I think what's interesting is my interests along the way have changed a lot, but that's kind of important. And so like the two bands I just mentioned, Hefner and Low Talker, to me, Hefner represents sounds and records that are current that I love now. And Low Talker reminds me that Wilco and Radiohead mm-hmm. are my favorite uh-huh. bands from back. You know, like those are the bands that like shape the interest that I'm into. And and so like, it's really fun to just kind of grab back to those references mm-hmm. that I hadn't thought about in probably 10 years or something, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, love them. Yeah, I mean, that's that was like my, you know, middle school, high school, just Wilco and Radiohead just <laughs> forming all of my decisions <laughs> from nice. here on out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Nate. Yeah, it was so cool you. to just listen to you talk. I feel like we could keep talking for hours and it still wouldn't be enough. <laughs> so I'd love to have you back. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah okay. This was really cool and yeah. I learned a lot and I still feel like I have a lot more that I need to learn. So we'll sure. definitely have you on again. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week and have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>